So look with me at verses 1 and 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The apostle begins in chapter 4, and he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. We'll pick up from there. I remember when my daughter Lexi took her first steps. It was back when we were living in Chicago, a south, uh, a south suburb of Chicago in a small little apartment. Lexi was about nine months old at the time, and Katie and I could tell that she was just itching to walk. And so one afternoon, she picked herself up on the couch, and she turned her body completely outwards. And we're sitting there thinking, she's going to do it. She's going to do it. And she throws her arms up in the air like she's riding a roller coaster or doing the YMCA. She takes about eight steps, and then, boom, face plants on the floor. Now, I'm sure you probably don't remember when you took your first steps, But you can remember, I think, when you took that first step of faith and started following Jesus Christ. And you know that that step of faith led into something more because one step turns into another step and it becomes a walk. And Paul likes to use this metaphor of walking to talk about the Christian life. He says it all over the place in the scriptures. In Ephesians 4.1, He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You must not no longer walk as the Gentiles do, Ephesians 4.17. Walk in love, Ephesians 5.2. Walk as the children of light. And now, as we see here in this passage this morning, you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Notice that ultimately this metaphor of walking has to do with walking God's way in life. It's about conduct. It's putting one step after another in the direction that God has charted for us. And why do we want to walk in God's way? Well, Paul says we want to walk in his way because we want to please God with our lives. Abraham Lincoln has said, you can please all of the people some of the time, and some of the people all of the time, but you cannot please all of the people all of the time. That is a freeing thought for me. I know, whether we like to admit it or not, that you and I are people pleasers by nature. We want people to like us. We crave it. But there's one big problem Generally speaking in life, when I please this person, it's almost inevitable that I'm going to displease this person. And just think about trying to operate through life like that. I I think about that for myself as a pastor. If I tried to please every single person who walked through the doors of this church, I would be crippled. But I don't have to please everyone, and neither do you. Remember, we have an audience of one. God doesn't say, please everyone. He says, please me. So the $6 million question is, is how do I please God and how do I walk his way? 
The answer is simple. Do God's will. By doing God's will, you please God with your life. So all of those scriptures that tell us what God wants us to do, we just simply follow what he says, and we're pleasing God with our life. And as we make our way forward here in this text, we're going to see that there's a couple of different ways that we walk in his way. Now, there was too much to cover this morning. I was going to tackle all 12 verses, but we're just going to look at eight of them. And we'll begin with the first way that we walk. We walk his way in sexual purity. Look with me at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I remember a couple of years ago, a man had called me up and he wanted to have a counseling appointment. He was divorced from his wife, he was estranged from his kids, and he was currently cohabitating with someone. And over the phone, he said that I would like to meet with you to talk about how I can do God's will and a little bit about my situation. So I agreed to meet. He comes to the counseling appointment and he walks into my door holding a big black Bible. And generally speaking, when I have a counseling appointment, I like to sit across the table from someone so that you can look each other in the eyes, you can read body language, you can show a person that you're listening to them. So as we're sitting across the table from one another, he takes this big black Bible and he just sets it down right in front of me. And he says, I know that I'm not doing anything wrong. I've looked all over this Bible and I can't find a single verse that says you have to be married to live together. And I sit there and I think to myself, whoa. I already know where this conversation is going. And I couldn't help but think in that moment, why do you want to have a conversation with me? If you don't care what God thinks on this subject, why do you care what I think on this subject? You see, here's the truth about this life. If you don't want to please God, you're not going to do his will. And if you don't do God's will, you are not going to walk in the Christian life. He started to volley arguments my way. One of the arguments that he was making was that the Bible doesn't specifically outline that sex is for marriage. It does. He wanted a crisp, clear statement. It has one. And he told me that the term sexual immorality is a vague term. It's not. You see, sexual immorality is not a vague term. It's a broad term. That means that when we tend to think of sex, we kind of narrow the focus of what sexual immorality is. We might say something along these lines, as long as you're a technical virgin before marriage, you're fine. And if you don't know what that term means, technical virgin, you can just lean over to the person next to you and ask them. Don't do that, I'm just kidding. No, technical virginity, right? That you've engaged in intercourse. So sexual immorality, though, is much broader. It's the Greek word porneia. It includes premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, and every form of pornography. So the term covers sins of the mind, the body, the eyes, the ears, sins of the lips. 
Kevin DeYoung makes this point about the word. He says, the simplest way that you can think about the word pornea is to think about the things that would make you furious or heartbroken if someone were to do those things with your spouse or if you're not married with your future spouse. So it's any sexual activity between those who are not married, between two men, between two women, or among more than two parties, or between family family members. Any sexual activity in these contexts is called sexual immorality. Now, why does God care about your sex life? Paul says that we are called to be a sanctified people. You see that there? Sanctified means holy. Holy means that you are called to walk in this world in a distinct way, and oftentimes a way that sets you apart from everyone else. It doesn't mean go hide in a cave somewhere. It means that you traverse in this world in a way that sets you apart as people look at your life. So as I'm talking about this subject this morning, I'm not going to bring up all the mores that are going on in our culture. It would be easy for me to do that for the next 45 minutes. But as Paul is talking to us this morning, he's talking to who? All of us, the church. He doesn't expect people who don't know Jesus to act like they do. Now here's the deal. When you start walking in God's holy standard, you actually become a better witness to the world because people see the distinct life and it makes Christ more attractive over time. One author writes this, in America today, the most radical thing a person can do is to be the husband of one wife or the wife of one husband. You see, when people see the blessing of God produced in your life as you do things his way, they'll start to question their own convictions. Let me just be clear on this. When you do life God's way, it does bring blessing. Every time. And when you do life outside of the context of God's will, it brings curse, it brings hurt, it brings heartache. And people will see that. So what are we supposed to do? Paul says abstain. Abstain means to hold off from, to distance oneself from, to have nothing to do with. Abstain means you separate yourself completely. You could think of it like this. Imagine that you're walking along and there's a pit, and the pit is filled with every kind of sexual evil imaginable. Now how do you respond to this pit? Do you just go and dance around the rim of the pit merrily? Do you dip your toe in to see what the slime feels like on your toe? Do you turn around and take a selfie of yourself with the pit? No. You stay as far away from the pit as possible. Paul says similar things all over the place in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6.18 Flee from sexual immorality. Ephesians 5.3, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Not even a hint among God's sanctified, holy people. But now I must be real. There's more than a hint. Kevin DeYoung writes, 
if we could transport Christians from almost any other century to any of today's Christian countries in the West, I believe what would surprise them most is how at home Christians are with sexual impurity. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't make us blush. We don't feel offended. It seems normal, even entertaining. Now, I know that this is a hard-hitting message. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, where's the grace, man? Come on. But here's the deal. As we grow in holiness, we begin to see just how much God is working in our life and he's changing us and how far along we've come. And then you realize that God, even in spite of what you were, he loves you. And as you see that contrast, then you start to understand just how amazing grace is. And so you need to talk about holiness if you want to understand that grace is amazing. So I'm going to ask us a couple of questions. What does a passage like this mean for the types of jokes we tell and the types of things we laugh at? Ephesians 5.4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. What about the way we dress? What about the media that we consume on a regular basis? Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say to you that you should never consume uh, any form of media or read any books that deal with sin. In fact, some of the best plays and movies, uh, some of the best television programming, the good ones do deal with sin in them. But the distinction that I'm trying to make this morning is that the good stuff that we consume never makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. You see the difference there? I was just talking to Pastor Josh in our office and this Wednesday he was speaking with the sojourners on media consumption, which then led the Sojourner staff to start talking about the shows that they're watching as well. And they got onto the subject of Grey's Anatomy. Do you guys want to talk about Grey's Anatomy with me? Some of you are like, don't go there, man. That's my show, okay? <laughs> Let's talk about Grey's Anatomy. You see, in the show, the main character, Meredith Grey, falls for Mick Dreamy, Derek Shepard. After one season of the budding relationship, one problem, one significant problem arises. The fact is, McDreamy is married. His unlikable wife, Addison, shows up seeking reconciliation. Derek agrees to try, but the viewers are led to root against reconciliation. Because he's in it with his brain and sense of commitment, yet his heart obviously loves her. The reconciliation fails, and it fails in the context of Derek cheating on Addison with Meredith Gray. You see there? Working on your marriage becomes strange. Adultery becomes normal. 
What's the problem here? One commentator notes, talking and thinking about sexual sins creates an atmosphere in which they're tolerated and which can promote their practice. So how do we abstain? Well, Paul will give us three practical applications. Because it's not easy to live in this world. Let's just be honest on that. So the first application that he gives us is by controlling our bodies. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So consider this truth with me. No one remains pure by accident. You don't just appear in somebody's bed who's not your husband or your wife. You didn't sleep, walk your way in front of the computer to view pornographic material. It means that I am driving the car and I am in control of what my body does. So how do we keep control over our wayward bodies? Three things. I think it's important to know yourself. What tempts you? What do you need to do about it? If we would spend more time just being honest instead of trying to look perfect and say that I indeed struggle with temptation, identify it for what it is, and then seek to turn away from it, we will be much stronger in this world. You see, there are certain conversations with co-workers that might entice you to make crude jokes. There are those gentle pats from a member of the opposite sex that move past friendliness into a different domain. Flee. No one remains pure by accident. I was thinking of those uh, who are dating right now, some of my single friends, and you might recall that a couple of weeks ago, or months ago, I told you that the question, how far is too far, is a terrible question. It's awful. The better question to ask is, what will bring Jesus glory so that when you run that question through the grid, will making out with this person in the dark all by myself bring Jesus glory? Kind of changes the nature of the situation, doesn't it? What about entrusting ourselves? Who do you trust yourself with? Who is someone that wants something for you and not something from you? Who cares about your soul and your walk with Jesus? I believe that every Christian needs to find themselves in an environment of grace where they feel the liberty or the freedom and the transparency to confess sin. And if we don't find ourselves there, then we're walking in this world alone. But it needs to be a place where there's no judgment, a place where this person is trustworthy not to dispense the information elsewhere. No one remains pure by accident. Thirdly, saturate yourself with the word of God. If you want one place in this world where righteousness is normal and sin is strange, right here, the word of God. The more that we absorb the word of God, the more that we will avoid sexual sin in our lives. So Paul first begins with controlling your body. Now he's going to move into telling us to love our neighbor. Look at verse 6. That no one transgress 
and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So do you see where Paul brings this matter into the realm of neighbor love? He says that no one would transgress or wrong his brother. Today we are prone to to view sexual matters as in the domain of the private or personal realm, and it only goes as far as two consenting individuals. But any sin that I commit in this life has a ripple effect. It doesn't just hurt me. It doesn't just hurt this other person. It hurts the community over time. It always involves another person, particularly pornography. In fact, pornography is exceptionally exploitive. Underage people, enslaved people, desperate people are put into the position of characters in pornography. So we need to think, how do I love my neighbor? And the only way to love my neighbor is to have sex in the context of a marriage where you have made vows of permanence and exclusivity. Otherwise, you are using that person for your personal gratification. I recently read the article from Vanity Fair, Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse. So this article is looking at young New York professionals and how they've developed this hookup culture with Tinder. Uh, hooking up is basically a term used for getting easy sex. Uh, the, the classic term used to be a, a one-night stand. Uh, so in this case, the Tinder app, if you're unfamiliar with what it is, is an app where dating was meant to be occurring, but they've evolved it into the realm of uh, making it easy for instant sexual gratification. You open up your app, you look at a person, and you swipe right if you think that they're good enough. You swipe left if they're not good enough. This is not loving to your neighbor. It's not uncommon for people to swipe through and reject hundreds of people daily. Men will refer to women as tenderellas. Women will talk about how they would never give that guy a chance because his body is unfit. One young man was talking about Tinder and why he uses it, and he says, you can't be selfish in a relationship. It feels good to do what I want to do. Paul's warning should cause us to pause. The Lord is an avenger in all of these things. Just as God detests slavery and child abuse, as he detests withholding food from people and putting them in starvation mode, he hates when I treat another human being like sexual trash. The hookup culture is just another example of human injustice. And so is our sexual sin. Because no matter how much our movies romanticize it, no, how, no matter how much I say it's just a private time at my computer, no matter how much I say I really love this person, 
the only way that you can really show them love is to commit to them in the covenant of marriage. And anything short of that is unloving. Thirdly, Paul tells us that we can abstain by relying on the Holy Spirit. Look now at verses 7 and 8. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, I know that a conversation like this is tough because we've been swimming in the cultural soup for some time now. It's just how we've done life. Righteousness has started to look a little strange and sinfulness a little normal. Tim Keller says these words, Only if God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. And not only have we gotten hold of a real God, we've gotten hold of a God who is holy. Holy. Completely other. Distinct. Perfectly righteous. And this God who is called thrice holy in Isaiah wants his people to walk in holiness. But let's be honest. We said it two weeks ago. We're going to say it again. Holiness is hard. It is. It's strange. It's foreign to us. Just the other week, I traveled up to Vermont to spend a couple of days of skiing. Now, leading up to this trip, I was so excited. I knew that the mountains were going to be just glorious and beautiful, and I had visions of myself just smoothly gliding down the mountain and making runs. But there was just one problem. I'd never skied a day in my life. (laughs) I was having a conversation with a guy who was uh, ringing up my items at the grocery store, and I said to him, I can't wait to go skiing. It's going to be a great time. And he said, well, how many times have you been skiing before? And I said, never. And he said, it's going to be an awful time. (laughs) You have to understand about people who grew up in the Midwest, okay? Strapping long boards to your feet and hurtling down mountains at 70 and 80 miles per hour It's just something we don't do. It's not that we're afraid of the skis or the speed. It's just that we have a big problem with mountains. There aren't any. (laughs) But I thought, no big deal. I'm going to purchase a ski lesson. I'm going to be skiing with the best of them, Dan Lusco, by (laughs) mid-afternoon. So to give you an idea of just how well my lesson went, I'm going to quote the inspiring speech from our ski instructor. Hey, guys. You did such a fabulous job. I mean, wow, I'm really impressed with all of you. If I was to rate you out of five stars, you would get five stars. And then he pauses, and then he looks at me. <laughs> and you, you're going to get it. <laughs> I think the word that would be most descriptive of what I did for the rest of the day is the word falling, because there was no skiing that was taking place. I don't know about you, but when I passed my mid-twenties, 
I stopped falling gracefully. It was in my 20s that when I would fall, there'd be this tuck and roll action, and if someone was watching from a distance, they might actually say, he meant to do that, but not anymore. The most descriptive way I can tell you that I fall is like throw a sack of potatoes on the ground, and that's what it looks like. And so why is this so difficult for me, I kept thinking. Because everything that my brain is telling me to do while I'm out there is wrong. Wrong, absolutely wrong. I need to relearn how to balance. I needed to learn how to ski. I needed to learn how to stop. For some reason, when you're hurtling down a mountain, you want to know how to stop. (laughs) And the only way to get better was to keep going. The same is true for growing in holiness in the Christian life. No one enters the Christian life and immediately walks like someone who's been walking with Christ since they were uh, five. Let's just be honest, okay? Some of us are going to need, after a message like this, to actually be gentle with ourselves. Because growing in holiness takes work and effort. And we all carry with us this baggage called our past. And if we continually look at that and make that our walk with Christ, we're going to fail. God has given you certain provisions so that you could learn how to pick yourself up and walk his way. Look at verse 8. He has given you his Holy Spirit. The Christian life is not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a big scroll that rolls out and on the left side, this is what you do do and this is what you don't do. Any Christian life that's presented like that is called moralism and it's not helpful to you. The Christian life is much deeper. It's much more virtuous. It's much more spirit-empowered as we read the word of God. So how do we grow in holiness? Well, we rely on the Spirit of God to be our instructor. And then he changes us, and he produces the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what we really need a lot of, self-control. But don't be deceived. You could have walked with Christ for 40 years, and you can still fall. You see, each and every day, I believe that we stand at a fork in the road. The left side forks off onto this path called relaxed morality, which is really the road called immorality. The right side forks off on the road called sanctification, and there's a guide waiting for you, the Holy Spirit. So to take the the world's path, it really just doesn't require much of you because as you're walking in life without God, you just track left and you go his way. And you find yourself in the world's path, first clouded by the fog of uncertainty, and then you find yourself making sinful choices which turn into sinful habits which then become sinful conditions that we start absorbing into our identity. We go from being people who do immoral things to being immoral people, and the end of that path is destruction. And the only way to get off of that path is to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and offer up your life to him 
and find your salvation in him. That's the first path. The second path, sanctification, is about being set apart by God, following his guide, the Holy Spirit, and living a life that honors him. You draw from the power of the Spirit and you grow a deeper and closer and more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. You find yourself saying no more to sin and yes more to righteousness. And you no longer look at the past. You start looking forward because the only way to walk in the Christian life is to look at Jesus and move forward. So you're no longer carrying guilt. You're no longer carrying shame. You're no longer playing the part of the hypocrite. You are growing in holiness. You're becoming a beacon of light to the world. That's the second path. The choice belongs to you. And the choice is a choice that we make each and every day. I'm making the choice when I begin my day. I'm making the choice as I go through my day. I'm making the choice as I end my day. What is God's will for your life? That you walk his way. And the question is, which are you going to choose while you're waiting? Let's pray.